Welcome to the very first episode of the Different Functional Podcast, where we explore overcoming a traumatic past to live an authentic life today. As you listen, remember that the stories we share are our own. They are our perceptions, our views, and our interpretations. We are not family historians, and we are not mental health professionals. We're simply two sisters who grew up together in a dysfunctional family. We've spent years studying trauma and learning to use our past as a stepping stone for growth. So join us as we discuss the lessons and insights we have gained on our journey from dysfunctional to different functional. I'm your co-host, Autumn, the older sister, and I love the anime Fruits Basket. And I'm Ivy, the younger sister, and I desperately want a St. Bernard and am very sad that I do not have one. Excellent. So now in most podcast templates, this is the area where you fill in small talk. Yeah. So uh... as you can see, uh, Autumn and I both suck at small talk, especially small talk under pressure, because that is in fact traumatic for us, which ties in perfectly to our topic for today, which is trauma. It will not work as well in future episodes, so we will have to figure something else out. But for the time being, enjoy our awkwardness. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> Shall we get started now? <laughs> Excellent. See, that was a great segue. Small talk straight into our topic that was seamless and smooth yeah i feel i feel good i'm about the queen this. of segways okay so <laughs> you are the queen of segways every day not like like the the little scooter things but like the you know the bridging oh. just to clarify yeah yeah <laughs> or the scooter things <laughs> i mean those cops always look super awesome riding around their little segways with their helmets so and maybe i'm the cop of segways today i don't know anyway let's move forward i'm not i'm not fit to be the chief of police let's go okay yeah i think i totally bungled our awesome segue anyway so <laughs> trauma bam all right so trauma really is a word that gets thrown around so much these days i mean it's in the media it's in movies i mean trauma 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 but for me to really really understand something I, I need a definition. It's not just a word. It's not just a context. I want to know what it is. And so for me, when I want that definition of something mental health, I'm going to go to the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, the DSM. And what the DSM is, it is basically the diagnosis Bible for the entire mental health industry in the United States. So when you look at this, this diagnosis Bible, when you look at the DSM and you say, well, what is trauma? They've defined trauma as actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. So if you've been through an experience where you have been threatened with death, actually possibly died, had significant serious injury, or were the victim of sexual violence, it's potentially there that you've had trauma. As much as I love definitions and labels and facts, that really only goes so far for me because trauma is something that is so personal and so subjective. I mean, what, what constitutes trauma to one person may not, at least on the surface, constitute trauma for another person. Trauma is, is such a subjective experience that when you try to just throw a general label on it, it doesn't always necessarily work um, because different people will have different variations of what trauma is to them. 
I, so I think that's, that's basically it for me. It's, it's something that is so deeply personal and intimate and it has some sort of negative impact on me or my ability to function in my current day life there, where there's flashbacks or a deep, intense emotion that arises because of this memory that to me was so completely tragic or frightening. It's got to be something that's really intensely felt. I, I totally agree with all of that. And I think when you, when you start talking about trauma in that way, it is so very personal. And so that definition that the DSM offers is very, very superficial in that way. And so then again, being the facts person I am, the next thing I try to really go is, well, how is trauma different than just a regular experience? And for me, this is where I jump into like the neurobiology. And I am not a neurobiologist by any means. Um, but when you look at a lot of the data out there, you basically get a, a pretty simple view of what trauma is versus a regular experience. And so I want to speak a little bit to that, that, that neurobiology, that physiological base of what trauma is, because I really think that's where we can start understanding how trauma is different than just a regular experience. So when we talk about trauma and how that gets processed, before we can do that, we have to talk about how the brain typically processes something. So now what happens when we're out there in the world is we have the data come in through our sensory organs. And that's your eyes, that's your ears, that's your nose, it's your skin, it's your mouth. It's all this sensory data. Now, before you're even aware of it, before you perceive something, it's just in a sensory form. So your brain doesn't even have it yet. So the first place it's going to go is back here into the thalamus, which is basically at the base of the brain. It's where the information first gets processed and it gets adjusted and it gets assessed really quickly. And the brain says, well, is this going to be an issue or is it not going to be an issue? And if it's not going to be an issue, well, it just passes it on up to the bigger people. It goes through the hippocampus, which is your regular memory center. And then it goes to the prefrontal cortex and all the thinking parts of your brain. So that kind of makes sense, Ivy, how a normal experience goes. Yeah, I, I would say that, that makes sense. It, it gives a very, um, in some ways, it's kind of helpful to have something that you can almost like separate from the personal experience of trauma. There's something concrete here. Yes, yes. And, and that's what it is. I mean, it is happening in your brain. And no, it, it's not psychosomatic in that way, because this is an actual thing. And so when it comes to trauma, it doesn't go through that normal thing. Like, you know, if you're reading something, if you're walking out, if you see a bluebird, if you, all these sorts of things, they're just normal experiences that happen. Even like super happy or super sad things like a, a death of a loved one or getting married or whatever it is, they're like super emotional, but they're not necessarily traumatic. What makes something traumatic is how it's processed in the brain. So when that information comes in, that sensory data comes in, Instead of going through the regular cycle, it says, whoa, this is a severe threat to us. We could potentially die. And so what it does is it activates your amygdala. And this is your alarm center. So it's going, meow, meow, meow. it is freaking the heck out because something is about to kill you. So this is the same type of thing if you've ever been out walking. And all of a sudden you jump back and you don't even know why you jump back. And then you look down and you saw a snake. This is the type of response we're talking about that gets activated. Before you even have conscious awareness of what's going on, parts of your brain have already activated your body to move. 
And this is what the trauma response is really tying into. That trauma response is tying into your adrenaline, your adrenaline response, your fear response, your stress response, whatever you want to label. So that the like so the, it goes to the amygdala. So sorry to interrupt. So it's like the 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 what is it? The flight, fight, or freeze response, basically, just something that's super primal and instinctual that you don't really have control over. Oh, yes. And you do not have control over this at all. It just automatically happens because in order for you to have control, you'd have to be able to perceive it to do something. And you don't even have perception of it yet. So the amygdala gets this information and says, we are going to die. And it floods your system with adrenaline. You get freaked the hell out. Now, the thing about the amygdala is that it remembers these experiences, Okay, so instead of the hippocampus remembering it, where we can logically think about something and remember the colors and different details, the amygdala doesn't work that way. The amygdala needs a body memory, because if you encounter a snake again, you don't need to remember how pretty the snake was or how it moved. You need to remember how to jump the hell out of the way. So the amygdala remembers how to put your body in that exact moment again to save you. So if you go through that experience and it is significant enough and big enough and huge enough and your brain and body actually feels like we are being so threatened, we could potentially die, we have to remember this for the future. And then what happens is it does. And so anytime anything like that happens again, your amygdala is automatically going to respond. It sees the movement of the stake and it responds exactly like it did before. But unfortunately for trauma, it's typically not about a movement of a snake. It's not something so easily overcome. It's usually something extremely emotionally overwhelming. And it freezes up your body or it causes you to want to fight or it causes you want to flee. And it's just so huge. But you don't have any control over it anymore because your amygdala said, hey, we're threatened. I'm going to take control over this. And so that's really where the big trauma versus regular experience comes in. Because regular experience, we can process through our normal thinking parts of the brain, but trauma has been hijacked. Those experiences, those memories, those triggers have been hijacked by the amygdala. So every single time is going to be an alarm. I, I think that kind of summarizes the data. Yeah. And I, I would like to add in there as well, I, if I'm understanding this correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, but that response will happen even if the event that you experience in the future isn't super similar or it's not as big of a threat because there's enough of a memory that now your brain views anything remotely close to that as being a threat. So like as an example, let's say you fall into the water and you almost drown. And that is definitely a very visceral experience that's going to create, you know, that, that sense of adrenaline and the body memory and that fear of death and all those kinds of things. So somebody who is almost drowned, who then ends up with an intense fear of water, it's not necessarily going to matter whether they fall into a large body of water or it's the deep end of a pool, or maybe even a bath that's a little bit too full, if the trauma is significant enough, that response may convince you that you're going to drown in the bathtub too. Am I correct in thinking that? That sometimes that response can be so, so intense and ingrained in you 
that when something happens in the future that is not necessarily a threat, you may still register it as a threat because it is remotely similar to what you experienced that was a real significant threat. Oh, that's very true. And and I think that's a big part of trauma. And we'll get into that in later episodes and trying to weed through your triggers is because part of, well, most of what the amygdala is doing, it's relying on sensory information. So it's not your perception of an event. It's like, oh, that's a lake or that's an ocean or it's a bathtub because that's a perception thing. That's a, my mind is able to think about this and clarify it. it it's more focused on the feel of the water on the face. It's more focused on that water being over your vision and your vision being altered because of it. So that sensory information is what it's focused on. And because at any given moment, I mean, think about your entire skin being a sensory organ, just that. Think about how many senses your body's experiencing right now. So which one of those did the amygdala tie it into? Or dozen or hundreds of that experience? Was it the jingle of an earring? Was it the feel of water? Was it the brush of hair? Whatever that sensory experience is, it's going to hijack your brain once it comes again. Yeah, and another thing that I kind of want to touch on and ask about, so obviously not all trauma is going to be something that is a physical threat like that. Some things are traumatic on a different level where you experience something that, yeah, you probably weren't going to die from it, but it did put you in some sort of um, predicament where very basic important needs were not being fulfilled like uh needs for you know shelter or food or just the sense of safety that like you can feel safe that your parents will protect you kind of thing and if they're not protecting you or if they're not loving you or even acknowledging your existence that is also a form of trauma it doesn't have to be a life or death kind of situation trauma occurs on different levels. It's not always physical, or at least not always exclusively a physical thing. Yes, that's very true. And I think that's really where a lot of the, you know, why is this person traumatized by that? And why is that person not? How can two people go through the exact same experience and not be traumatized? And I think part of it is because of whether or not your mind believes you are going to be threatened with potential significant harm. So think about it like if you come up to a three-year-old with a very frightening mask and you just jump out of nowhere and you scream at her and she's never experienced this before, that little three-year-old child is probably going to be terrified, you know. But if you did the same thing to a 40-year-old, well, they probably aren't going to be as terrified. They might be scared for a little bit, but they're not going to perceive that as something that could threaten their life where a three-year-old would. And so that same thing happens is like, what's going on in the kid's life? Are the parents regularly there to, to, to calm them, to be there for them? Are the genetics in place to help that child recover and to have positive balances of neurochemicals? So you, you take all those factors in and then it comes down to, so in that moment, did the person think they were going to die or have a serious threat? And even if they weren't actually, and the objective look at it is, no, that wasn't going to happen, it doesn't change the fact. I mean, you know, trigger warning here, but molestation, you know, when that happens, a lot of times you're not going to die from that. But is that, that is a serious, significant, invasive threat to yourself. And when that happens as a young person or even as adult, 
it is such a huge impact that it threatens your ability to believe you can survive it. Maybe not physically, maybe psychologically, but it threatens your ability to believe you're going to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think we're really gonna cover a whole lot about this today, but I also want to make note as well that even if somebody does not consciously register something as being as having been traumatic to them, that does not necessarily mean that it does not affect them because the way that we respond to the trauma or um, condition ourselves to respond to trauma over time can convince us that something that was traumatic in that moment is not something that traumatized us at all. Um, for instance, a lot of people that I know who tend to of the flight, fight or freeze response, the people that tend to have that fight response are much more likely just in my own personal experience are much more likely to look at look back on that situation you know, being you know verbally abused by a parent or whatever and say oh no that wasn't traumatic they weren't being abusive to me like that was the, it was just wasn't that big of a deal that doesn't mean that that person was not traumatized it does not mean that that trauma did not affect them but they may not be consciously aware of the impact that that trauma had on them they may not consciously be able to um correlate you know how they responded to similar triggers now as being something that they, they may not be able to look at that and be like, oh, I'm traumatized by this. They may not understand that that's what's going on. It may just make them feel trapped or irritable or whatever, but they brush it off. They don't think of it as being a trauma response that they're having. Oh, yeah, that's very true. And I think that really starts speaking to <clears throat> Uh, the difference between, like, I guess you'd call it pervasive or a chronic trauma versus a singular event. Because a lot of times when we have a singular event and you have that life-threatening, almost drowned, in a car accident, bomb blew up right by you, we're able to look back and go, oh my god, that was scary, that was threatening, it was big, it was huge, we can define it. It's the tiny little things, especially when you're growing up, that really, you, you really can overlook. Because what your trauma response, what your stress response is trying to do is help you survive. And so if you grow up in a household where every day you're encountering some sort of significant threat to yourself, you're constantly trying to survive. And if at the end of 18 years you've survived, your stress response did exactly what it was genetically programmed to do. It kept you alive. So was that genetic programming or the was the response you had to cower in a corner? Was it to agree with your abuser? Was it to fight back so you feel like you had some control? Was it to starve yourself so you feel like you had some control? Whatever it is, you now feel like you survived because of that behavior. And so like any childhood behavior, we go along thinking, oh, this is normal, this is normal, this is normal, this is normal. And if we never really look outside of ourselves at what is honestly healthy and what is honestly beneficial to us, a lot of these responses just seem normal. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, I, of course I feel a little flighty or I feel a little cagey or I feel a little whatever. That's just normal. Well, is it? Or was that normal in your childhood? And so it feels normal to you when in reality it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually just going to bring that up, how, how the normalization of trauma within the context of a group, whether that's uh, like family units or whether that's even socially, um, 
the normalization of trauma can make us think that we were not traumatized, that this is just a normal part of life. You don't think of it as trauma because this is all you know. This is just life. And we don't automatically just assume that normal life is trauma is traumatic. That's not, <laughs> I don't think that's really something that we automatically come into the world thinking is like, well, life is just traumatic. So when you have a series of traumatic events going on, especially in an isolated environment, and a lot of times very dysfunctional families do kind of exist in, in kind of a, a, a form of isolation because there are a lot of family secrets and there's abuse and there's neglect and there's all these things that we don't want the outside world to see. And so those families can often become very isolated. And that be, makes that normalization even more prominent where you just think that this is how things operate and you may not even recognize that you've been traumatized until you become an adult and you go out into the world and you start seeing how other people live or seeing how different life can be and then you may be hit with the realization that wow those experiences were actually very traumatic to me and i did not even realize that until i was shown that that's not normal and i think Speaking to that just a little bit more, the, the frightening thing to me, the scary thing to me, is that because trauma is so common in, in our culture, and it happens so frequently, this kind of invasion and this kind of violence occurs so often, that a lot of people do, do perceive it as normal. And, and the reality is, is, even if it is normative, even if this is what happens more often than not on a statistical scale, it still doesn't make it healthy. Just because 60 or 70 or 80 percent of people are experiencing this doesn't make it healthy. It still can be extremely damaging physically, psychologically, spiritually to the person. So even though we're normalizing it and perhaps our culture is even accepting it and being like, oh, that's just how it is. That's just how things are does not make it healthy at all. No. And that can be one of the struggles with with trying to heal from trauma as well is when your experience of trauma and your expression of I have been traumatized, I have been abused or whatever that trauma is for you. When everyone around you is being like, I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of this. It's just not that big of a deal. It's just not that important. Or like everybody goes through that. What's so special about you when your experience of that trauma is invalidated, that makes it even harder to heal from it because it's, in a sense, you're being re-traumatized because people are telling you what you experience does not matter. What you feel does not matter. It wasn't real or it wasn't important or you're overreacting. And that in and of itself can, can make things work that can re-traumatize you because you are still not safe. You are not even safe to come out and say, this is something that happened to me and it had this negative impact on me. And I should be able to acknowledge that openly in order for me to heal, that is a, is a form of abuse or trauma or whatever you want to call it as well as to have everybody around you invalidate your experience or treat you like you're broken or crazy or defective somehow. Yes, and that's, that's very true. And it's also extremely difficult in those childhoods where you grow up and you don't have anything necessarily significant as you know, you got hit or you got raped. Maybe it's just that simple constant verbal abuse or emotional abuse or that low-level neglect that's constantly happening. And so it's really hard to point at, well, here's this thing. You just have a whole childhood of feathery feelings 
but it, it doesn't make it any different that that was trauma, even if you can't point to a very, very specific thing. Yeah, there, there's one thing that, um, that I, I've seen because I, I read a ton of psychology books and a ton of um, like self-help books and things like that. And one of the things that I've seen come up in there, and I kind of like your take on this, Autumn, there's, there's this idea um, that, I, that I've seen presented in multiple books where there's like the trauma that, you know, is easily identifiable, abuse of some kind. Um, you know, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, whatever, things that are very, like you can look at it and be like, that is definitely abuse or that is definitely trauma. And then there's other forms of trauma that may not necessarily look like trauma, like um, false empowerment, um, telling a child that they're perfect, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with them, that everything that they do is amazing, uh, or um, yeah, just it, creating this idea that this child that, that this child is a creation of the parent or or whoever that that uh, authority figure is do you consider that to be a form of trauma to look at a child and that child is trying to develop their sense of who they are and they have these ideas about who they are and the parent is saying no you are this because i want you to be this and you are perfect because you are this thing that I am envisioning. Do you view false empowerment as a form of trauma or not? I think, like I've said before, I mean, for me, it really comes down to the biology of it. And with the biology of it, it comes down to were, was your sense of self or your physical being or your psychological being threatened? And I think with false empowerment, I mean, you have two themes there that could definitely be considered traumatic. Um, one being you need to feel loved and belonged as a child. You need that. And so if you guys are thinking out there, oh no, love is not necessary. Okay, look at all the studies about babies that don't get touched, that don't get held, that don't get loved. They die. That's what happens without love. You die. So as, as a very young child, you need love. You need belonging. You need affection. You need it in order to stabilize your physical self. So you can even have a consistent heartbeat. So you know how to balance your temperature, all of these very basic things. So if as a very young child, you're told you're only going to receive this affection if that's frightening. Because what happens when you fail? I'm only going to get love if I achieve this A. I'm only going to get love if I am pretty enough to win this pageant, whatever it happens to be, well, your entire physical self, again, is being threatened. Your sense of self, your sense of ability to survive is being threatened because you know that without that love, without that parent defending you in this world, you could potentially die. So yes, that could be traumatizing. I, and I think the other piece, oh, sorry, just real quick that it speaks into is a sense of control. And so even if you're not talking extremely young children, let's start getting a little bit older. Well, one of the very basic things most of us need to feel safe is a sense of control. I have some control over who I am, that I can escape a threat, that I can get the food I need, that I have control over my life. And so if the parent is overwhelmingly controlling, again, you're causing a threat to that sense of self. You're causing that threat to the ability to survive psychologically that's how it's perceived so if you have that empowerment yeah that could be traumatizing definitely if the person is primed to perceive it as a threat to their survival yeah and and i think to to add on to that um it's it's not even 
it's not even just the idea that you are only worthy of love if it is also it can also be the complete unacknowledgement of who that child actually is so let's say you're a child who was really into art or music and that was what you really wanted to do it's what you really felt passionate about but you had a parent that was like no you're a good athlete even if you weren't or maybe you were but that's not actually what you wanted to do but your parent or whoever it was looked at the things that you were doing that you wanted to do and they either completely ignored them or was like that's not worth anything and this over here what i want you to do this is what makes you good so Un, being unacknowledged for the things that you want to be acknowledged for, not being seen for the person that you actually are from a young age, I think, personally, I think is a form of trauma as well. If you have a parent who is not only trying to, or, or somebody who's not only trying to shove you into this box of what they want you to be, but is also just completely ignoring, choosing or choosing to ignore who you are saying you want to be because that's that's overstepping boundaries that's invading your sense of self that's telling you that what you want does not matter who you believe you are does not matter the boundaries that you have for yourself those do not matter what matters is this is what i want you to be you are a creation of mine you will be this thing i will not see anything else i think personally that is a form of trauma as well Oh, yeah. And, and it really is because, again, it's a threat to your survival. And when I'm saying survival, like a lot of us think, you know, and, and I guess it kind of sounds that way, too, is it's life or death. And we're not necessarily talking about the survival of your physical being. Think about the survival of your psychological being. We all have this personality, this person we've become, this person we are. Well, if that is threatened, your very psychological existence is threatened. That's very traumatizing. It is a survival issue because you're talking about potentially killing off somebody's psychological entity killing off or altering or significantly injuring their personhood or their being or whatever you want to define it as yeah and that that is also something that does not necessarily have to correlate to childhood either that can also be something that happens during adulthood for instance let's say you always wanted to be a soldier you grew up wanting to be a soldier you were interested in doing those things you watched army movies you, you were into all of that stuff and you go into the service and you spend a few years in and then you get some sort of injury that makes it so that you are discharged or you can't re-enlist and your entire sense of who you are is has now been threatened because you always wanted to be this thing and you were this thing and you devoted yourself to being a soldier and then that was taken away from you against your will now what do you do with your life that is also a form of trauma where your sense of identity is threatened so it doesn't always have to come that sort of trauma doesn't always have to come from another person taking that from you it doesn't always have to stem back to childhood that is something that can happen at other points of your life based on circumstances that you find yourself in that really shake the foundations of who you believe yourself to be. Yes. And, and I think that's really, I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is that it shakes the foundations. It shakes the foundations of your ability to live. It shakes the foundations of who you are. It's something that shakes your foundations so much that your house is going to fall whether it be your psychological house, whether it be your physical house, whether it be your spiritual house, trauma is something that shakes your foundation so hard 
you are honestly believing that your house will fall down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that covers kind of the broad spectrum, um, roughly anyway. Trauma is trauma is such a a large umbrella of things. There are so many, so many situations, so many circumstances, uh, so many events and feelings and everything that can get wrapped up in trauma. But I think that's a pretty good look at trauma overall. I mean, yeah, you have your physical traumas, those those uh, life or death situations, but trauma can look like so many things. Trauma, like we were just saying, really is something that dramatically shakes the foundations of who you perceive yourself to be, what you believe reality to be, what is normal for you. Like it, trauma is something that just, it, it, it shakes everything and it impairs you in some sort of significant way. Yeah, it really does. And I think, I mean, you know, this is our personal exploration and our personal story. And I think it would be kind of beneficial if we shared some of what that personally looks like for us, because we can talk about these general ideas and these general examples, but what does it really feel like in the moment for an individual experiencing a trauma? I mean, do you think... Do you have a single memory that you could share, Ivy, that potentially was like you look back or you get triggered to after all your work, you're aware that that was a moment that was traumatizing? Yeah, I do. And and I think this this example that I'm going to use also kind of shows how um, there's kind of like that lower level subliminal trauma as well that all kind of ties in together. So for me, probably one of the most traumatic events in my life that has caused me the, the most issues in my adult life um, was being abandoned by our father. So for a large portion of my childhood, I viewed our father as my everything. I adored him. I felt safe with him. He was the only person that I really felt that I received any sort of affection from, that I, the only person that I really believed unconditionally loved me. And some of that was, you know, him manipulating me into believing that. But the fact is, is that I believed that he was my everything. He was my whole world and I was daddy's girl. I could do nothing wrong. There was a lot of false empowerment there. Um, I was spoiled rotten. I, I never got in trouble for anything. And so I had this relationship with my father and I thought this is forever. And I thought this is what a father-daughter relationship is supposed to be like. This is what unconditional love looks like. I never have to worry about this falling apart. And then it did. When our parents got divorced, almost immediately, he moved another woman into our house. Um, after the divorce, when, my, when our mom moved away and we spent that summer with mom and like two nights before we were supposed to go back to stay with our father, we got a phone call from him letting us know that he had been seeing another woman and that she was now living in our house. And that was the first moment that I was like really uncomfortable because that he totally sprung that on me. Um, in fact, before we had left to spend the summer with our mom, he had expressly told me he was going to stay single for a really long time, maybe forever. And it was going to be great. It was going to be wonderful. And it was the household was going to be peaceful. And it was just going to be him and Autumn and I and everything was going to be great. So that started to shake things for me, started to shake my trust in him when he sprung that on me. And then after we got back, the entire dynamic with my father changed completely. 
I, everything I did was wrong. I could not do anything right. I couldn't get along with his new girlfriend. Things went south very quickly. It got to the point where he would give me the silent treatment for days and he would threaten to kick me out. He would threaten to disown me, all of those things. And then eventually it happened. I think it was probably what, like a year and a half, maybe two years after she moved in. I can't really remember for sure how long that period of time was. Because for me, it was like being stuck in a time warp. It was just like every day lasted forever. And yet that time went by so quickly as well. But my entire world turned upside down as soon as she moved into the house, because my dynamic with my father completely changed. Who he was changed completely. I stayed the same. I was still the same person. But somehow, I wasn't important to him anymore. He didn't love me anymore. I couldn't do anything right anymore. And then after a time, he just didn't want me around anymore. And he kicked me out, kicked Autumn out too. Um, and then I found out after I moved away from some friends of mine that he had been telling people in our town that he had to get rid of me. He had to get me out of his house because I was, I was a whore and I was sleeping around and I was ruining his reputation and all of those things. I was... 13. I was 13. And I was being accused of all of these things that I did not do by the one person that for so many years I had believed would love me unconditionally and forever. In that, in that period of time, from when she moved in to a few minutes, to a few months after he kicked me out, my entire sense of reality changed. It has been so hard since then for me to trust anybody, for me to believe that anybody would stay. I have gone through life since that point thinking that every single relationship that I have with anybody of any kind, every single relationship has an expiration date on it. At some point, something is going to go awry. You can never fully trust another person someday they will leave you and it may not have anything to do with anything that you actually did that altered everything for me and i thought for the longest time that it was just that trauma of him kicking me out of the the shift in personality that happened when he moved his new girlfriend in but he had been abandoning me for years and i did not realize it he was never there when i needed him he would be at home when it suited him and he would give me attention when it suited him. But if I had ever actually needed him, I had no way of getting in touch with him. Cause even when he had a pager, he never responded to it. He never called home. He knew that things were, were not great at home. He knew that the, the situation was bad, but he still was inaccessible. But because when he was home, he gave me so much attention. I made him my entire world. And because he told me I was all these wonderful things and that I was perfect, I believed that about myself, even though who he saw me as, I, I knew that who he saw me as wasn't, wasn't the actual person that I was, but I kept trying to conform myself to fit his idea of who I was because I wanted to be that for him because he was my whole world and I wanted to be his whole world. He had been abandoning me for years, for as long as I could remember. And it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't just him kicking me out of the house that was the trauma. And it took me a long time to realize that I have felt so triggered by so many different things over the course of my life because of that sense now that I have 
that I will be abandoned. And it's, it's not just being triggered and feeling that act of trauma. I, it has also affected me in the sense that I have a disconnect from a lot of my relationships and I tend to keep people at arm's distance because I have it in my head that every relationship has an expiration date. That is the most significant trauma for me of my life that I can, that I can call back to that is one, a one very specific large event, but then also a series of, of traumatic events that I did not even recognize until much later. Um, what, what do you have autumn for, for, for I'm sure well, you've got something too. Yeah. Well, I mean, first I just kind of want to comment a little bit and, and point out some of the themes really of what you were talking about. And first to give people some idea, um, Ivy being 13, that was 20 years ago, right? Ivy in my math thing, right? Uh, 20 yes. years. <laughs> I had to think about that for a second yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is 20 years old. So that specific memory where she started getting choked up, where she was hurting is 20 years ago. And, and that is really a very good point about how that body takes you right back to that place again. So as Ivy's seeing this, I've got her on my webcam here and I see her and it's almost like looking at her at 13 again. And I'm sure that's what it feels like inside of her body, because when you have this traumatic memory, you can't just be talking about it. You can't just, you know, like it's not a thing unless you completely divorce yourself of your emotions. Um, and so when you do, it comes back. And so Ivy is 13 again and she feels it again the same way she did that exact day. She feels it again. And so I just want to point out that, you know, that's a really good point of that trigger there. Yeah, I, I want to and make then, one note about that as well. Not only is it 20 years, that is 20 years where I have been actively working to overcome that. I've been in therapy off and on during that period of time. I have done so much work on myself, um, self-help books and like the psychology books and trying to understand things and all sorts of stuff that I have done to try to actively overcome this. This is not a, this is not a trauma that I just like ignored until last year. This is something that from that moment that that trauma occurred, I've been actively trying to overcome that. And it still affects me just as intensely as it did in that moment. Yep. Because that's how the that's how the amygdala works. That memory is stored there. So when it powers up, here you are 13 again, no matter how much work you've done, no matter how many years. What the work has allowed her to do, though, was allowed her a to feel her emotions because for the longest time, Ivy cut herself off and b to be able to calm and collect herself, take that deep breath she needs and be able to move forward, knowing that she's safe, knowing that she's progressing now. So. If you are worried about like, oh, I'm traumatized, it's never going to go away. To some degree, yeah, it's never going to go away. But it doesn't mean it's going to screw your life up forever. So anyways, kind of getting back on track. Um, I think you gave a really good broad example. And I think a really good one for a lot of our, our listeners out there that experienced that childhood full of trauma, which we did, was just decades and years of it. Um, I think I want to give a very specific memory um, again there wasn't a lot of physical abuse in our house so you're not going to hear a lot of physical stuff from me and ivy um, as far as like you know getting beaten or arms broken or anything like that um, a lot of mine is a lot more psychological and so i'm gonna gonna do a super focus here and i'm gonna go down to geez what's probably in all reality 30 seconds of my life 
And this is probably one of my most traumatizing events that happened within 30 seconds of my life. And I was going to, I think I was about five years old. And the memory I have of me is hiding in the back of a Volkswagen bug. Um, I can still feel the springs of the seats underneath me. And I can still, I'm getting shaky. I'm just talking about this. And I can still feel the, the windowsill under my fingertips. And I can still smell the way it smells back there. And what had happened, um, again, this is something a lot of people would say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But my mom was going through a lot of miscarriages at the time. And she, pardon my language, flipped her shit so she is storming through the house, going crazy, yelling, screaming, hitting herself repeatedly in the head, swearing. And my mom had always been my safety. No matter what happened, no matter if we didn't have food or didn't have shelter or whatever, mom was safety. I knew I was going to be okay because mom was there to keep me safe. And that 30 seconds that I remember is when that broke. And I knew in that moment, there would never be anyone that could keep me safe. There was never any safety to be had. It was an illusion. It was pretend. And nobody could be trusted again. And again, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And I'm trying to <laughs> get myself back into the thinking mode and out of the emotional experience with that. Um, but for me, it was because safety continues to be the defining feature of everything I do. And it was that moment that I realized life is not safe. People you love are not safe. You will never be safe. And I mean, it's just one little tiny thing, one 30 second thing, but it completely made me believe that at any moment, anybody could just unfold anything could happen and i did i felt i felt terrified i remember the terror in my heart my little heart and my tiny little chest beating so fast hiding from my mother because i was terrified of her and there was nobody else i mean i barely knew my father at that point he'd been in my life for two years and was barely ever around um, my brother and i had kind of an interesting relationship he wasn't there i think he was at school Ivy wasn't born yet. My grandma was hours and hours away. So there was nobody. And that's kind of how it had always been. It was just me and mom, me and mom. And so that got broken. And in essence, I got broken. And I know it's just one time. And then fortunately, um, as happens in a childhood like that, that may have happened at five. But as Ivy said, you know, Forrest had been abandoning her again and again and again. Well, from five, that safety got broken. And that got reaffirmed again and again and again throughout my childhood um, through the various traumas that we did experience later and the things that happened. No one could be trusted. No one was safe. And that was the reality of it. And it got reaffirmed for almost two decades after that. And so, I mean, that's kind of takes it from the, the macro of a childhood to this, you know, few seconds of a moment experience. But both of those are, are what trauma feels like or can feel like in the moment. Yeah. And, and I think what's important to note about your story and how other people might be able to relate to it is that that sometimes is all it takes 30 seconds, maybe less, 
may be enough to change your entire life, to change your entire sense of reality and what is safe, what is love, what is real, who you are, what your family is. It so small of an amount of time, only a few seconds could be all it takes to change the entire trajectory of your development. Yeah. And, and I think it's really important too, especially for those of us, I mean, cause this is the big focus is, you know, those that have gone through that dysfunctional family and that entire childhood of trauma is that unfortunately those events, they happen again and again and again and again and again. And so when you have something that causes that crack in your foundation, maybe, maybe if that was a one-off thing, and that foundational crack happened. And it was at five. So I was very young, a lot of plasticity in my brain. And everything else all of a sudden magically became okay again. Maybe I wouldn't have been as affected by it as I am now. But unfortunately, when you go through a childhood of trauma, it doesn't work that way. You don't get a one-off time where your mom goes crazy. You get that day after day, week after week, year after year. And so what seems like, oh, that's just you overreacting is, no, that's an accurate reaction because that woman is not safe. That man is not safe. No one in this household honestly cares if you live, if you die, if you eat, if you don't, because their pain is bigger than you. And so when you're six and you're seven and you're eight and you're scrambling to get food of your own, yeah, Safety isn't something you can trust other people. So it gets repeated throughout childhood. Yeah. So if you are a parent out there and you're like, oh my God, I lost my shit with my kid once. Don't freak out. <laughs> you know, I don't want you to think the kid's totally toasted now. Um, it, it is it is partially that single moment. But when it comes to childhood trauma, and I really think that's why recently the mental health has started differentiating between post-traumatic stress and complex post-traumatic stress is because it's that moment repeated for years. Yeah. I think that there's going back to, you know, addressing the parents, don't freak out if you have lost your shit around your kid a time or two. I think another thing that's important to note is that the more actively you, you work to mend those situations, the better everybody's going to lose their shit from time to time. But if after you do that, you are making conscious efforts, you know, to, to not repeat that on a regular basis, but you're also having conversations with your kids on a level that they can understand that it's like, I had a moment. It was like, you know, mommy or daddy, whatever had had a tantrum. And, you know, this is what was going on with me. And I'm going to try very hard not to do that again. And it wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. If you have these kinds of conversations with your kids where you're actively working to mend those things, that trauma is not going to affect them as much. And the kid is, your, your kids will be able to learn that everybody has those moments. And that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. And it doesn't mean that I'm never safe. It's just everybody has those moments. And so when I have those moments, you know, as a child, when I have those moments, it doesn't mean I'm bad. And it doesn't mean I'm broken. And it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It just means that I'm having a moment. So yeah, you know, the, those moments can be very traumatic for a child. But if you are actively working to minimize the 
damage that it does and to mend those things and to give your child an understanding that sometimes this is life and life can be kind of hard sometimes it's not hard all the time but sometimes it's hard and sometimes sometimes we we struggle with it I, I think that makes a huge difference towards giving a child a healthy sense of reality where they can still feel safe and loved yes and um, and we'll definitely talk about this in another episode for sure. But what that speaks to directly is what um, they have they've labeled it as resiliency factors. So, you know, everything in life has, you know, light matter to dark matter, the parasympathetic nervous system to the sympathetic nervous system. And part of that is trauma to resiliency factors. So trauma can occur, but if you have enough resiliency factors, the person's going to be able to survive it and deal with it and work with it and lessen it. So, but again, that's something for a whole nother episode because I could talk for hours about resiliency factors and someday I will. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure over the course of this series, there will be hours and hours worth split up across episodes about resiliency factors because uh, Autumn and I especially have spent a lot of our life kind of focused on being as resilient as possible. (laughs) Um, I think just to kind of you know, make it a little more global. And and we've kind of talked about some general examples and we've talked about some personal examples. But let's maybe talk about some of those examples we've seen in in media, whether in books or anime or TV shows, movies, uh, memoirs, um, maybe something somebody could pick up and read or something they may have heard of. Do you have any, like, I guess kind of general pop culture trauma references where you could go, you know, if you're really interested in this or you'd like some actual, what does this look like? You could go and look at. Uh, Yes, I do. Um, And I'm going to give a couple here because um, one is much more intense than the other and can be much more triggering than the other. So you really want to be in a good headspace for, for one. The other one I'm going to give is a little bit, more mild, there's still some emotional intensity and potentially triggering events, but I think it's something that is much more easily digestible for people. So the one's a little bit more easily digestible. Uh, as far as movies go, if you've never watched the film, uh, The Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, that is an excellent film that gives a really great example of trauma as a child and how that can affect you as an adult and how it affects you know a family unit as well as affecting a, a an individual person so the film basically focuses on the main character who's played by Sandra Bullock and she writes a she she's a, a playwright so she writes this play or i think it's she either wrote a book about her child or she wrote a play about her childhood and she's being interviewed about it and the way that she describes her childhood to her, it's kind of, she's making light of it. She's, you know, doing what a lot of people do when they have a traumatic childhood and they're trying to bring some humor into it because that's how a lot of people cope. But the journalist who's interviewing her when she writes her story really warps what she says. And when that gets back to her mother, uh, who Sandra Bullock has a very contentious relationship with, when the, that gets back to her mother, her mother flips out and it turns into this huge fight between the two of them and going back and forth about it. And they decide they're not going to talk anymore. They want nothing to do with each other. And the Sandra Bullock's character gets kind of 
kidnapped by her mother's friends and they try to help heal that wound between mother and daughter that has existed for so, so long. And what I think is really a good example of, of that trauma and that full scope of trauma is the movie goes back and forth between flashbacks from her childhood with her mother and to the, the present day and the argument that they're in the middle of having. And those experiences from her childhood, some of them are really, really traumatic events with her mother, but some of those memories are very positive with her mother. And it really shows how you can develop a very complicated relationship with the people close to you and with your parents, that sort of thing, but also a complicated relationship with trauma and with yourself. Um, and how you deal with things in life as an adult. So I think that's a really great film to watch to give to, to give a solid example of trauma from childhood and how it affects you in present day life. Uh, the other book that I would really suggest um, that is more intense, and there's a film adaptation of it as well, Running With Scissors. And I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail on that one because the storyline is very complicated, um, but it involves trauma of multiple different types, uh, family trauma, um, trauma and abuse involving, um, you know, mental health practitioners who were supposed to be, you know, a protective role and who are exploiting that. Uh, there's trauma in there that, that relates to, you know, sexuality, but it is, if you can handle it, and again, trigger warning, because there is a lot of intense content in there. But if you can handle it, it really gives a great example of a wide spectrum of trauma that occurs over the course of this young man's childhood. And it doesn't give a whole lot of insight into him as an adult because he the book is is written you know, as he is a young adult. But it does show that as a young adult, that when you first get out into the world and you see how the rest of the world operates and recognizing, holy shit, my life has been really weird up to this point and I'm going to have a lot of issues from this and I don't even know how to function in this world. I think that book is a really great, is a really great example of a lot of different types of trauma and how you kind of come into the world later on and you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing now. Like starting off from not a blank slate because you've got a lot there already, but coming into adulthood with all of this baggage that you have no idea what to do with. And somehow now you have to function as an adult in a world that doesn't understand you. What about you, Autumn? Do you have any pop culture references? Oh, um, I, I would say probably my biggest, and I find it interesting that both of ours deal a lot with how they healed in adulthood <laughs> and how it affected them as adults, which I think after I give this, we may need to talk about how that trauma does tie into our adulthood some. Um, but I think um, my, my two biggest, one of them is going to be Sucker Punch. It's a movie, a little bit older. I think this is really good because I feel like that's a very single event significant trauma. Um, the death of a mother and then getting institutionalized after um, attempted, I believe it was rape um, by the stepfather. Um, I find this very interesting because I feel like it also is somewhat reflective. It's very artistic and somewhat interpretive, um, but it's action adventure movie. So if you like action, there's explosions and things. So that's good. Um, but it's it's kind of reflective of how sometimes the treatment process that people who are traumatized go through 
can be re-traumatizing or more exposing and isn't honestly as helpful as it is. And that sometimes it's more the relationships that we form with one another or the other crazy people that really end up helping us fight our way back to a normalized reality that we can live with. Um, again, very good movie. Um, a lot of artistic, a lot of interpretation. And my other one, which a lot of people would probably say was traumatizing, um, it was Black Snake Moan. And this was a movie, um, Christine Ricci, uh, excellent, excellent actress in that, um, came out a few years back, controversial because it was about a black man who ended up um, chaining a young white girl to a radiator. And you would think, well, like, oh, that's the traumatic event. But if you really watch this movie, that was honestly the healing event. Because in this movie, Christina Ricci had experienced a childhood where her mother allowed her to be molested and abused again and again and completely denied that that happened. And so at this point, she is really fucked up. Um, she cannot get by. Um, relationships horrible. Um, the only way she can basically calm herself is to have sex. And so she's very sexually promiscuous, which is really damaging to her, her current relationship because she's trying really hard. And through a series of events, she ends up with this old man who's gone through his own late life version of trauma through the loss of his wife and everything he had built and lived for. And he gets it into his head that he's going to cure her, heal her. And so she gets stuck in this house. But what I like about this is this is sometimes how, how trauma healing actually comes about is you have to get stuck. Because the reality is for a lot of us, if we can avoid it, we're going to. Because that's one of the things about trauma in adulthood. You want to avoid it. You don't want to get near it. You don't want to feel about it. And you want to flee it. And so she's forced to stay there. And as she stays there, they're able to build a safe relationship, a safe place, one safe person for both of them. And they're able to heal through that. And they're able to change through that. And I also love that movie because at the end of it, it's not happily ever after. And nobody is perfect. But they've taken those first steps to becoming whole. And so you see that, yes, they're still shaky and yes, there's a chance for backsliding and yes, there's a chance for returning to that. And so it's up to you. Do you continue to take the steps forward and away from the trauma or do you allow yourself to slide back into it? And sometimes, uh, sometimes the, it's the relationships you least expect that maybe seem like they would not be great for you that end up be, being the most healing ones. Sometimes, sometimes who helps you heal best is somebody who is equally wounded. <laughs> <laughs> yes or wounded in a very different way but yeah I, I mean and I think that's I, I love the mental health professional and I'm not saying anything against therapy but I, I personally in my own life have found a lot of healing in other people and in my own relationships because I really feel it takes amount for me I need somebody that understands where I'm coming from even if not my own exact experience somebody that's fucked up that can get it yeah that's just me personally <laughs> no. No, i mean that's definitely been the the case for me as well and i suspect it's the case for a lot of people because again most of the people in my life that i've become very close to are people that have their own significant trauma from their life and that is what what kind of brings us together because when you experience a lot of trauma especially when you experience a lot of trauma early in life you do function differently and a lot of you know supposedly normal people however you want to define that 
they don't know how to interact with you. It makes them feel awkward. They they don't really want to talk about those things. And sometimes the, the things that you say, even if it's not related to your trauma, they, it could just be off-putting or awkward. Um, so a lot of times another person who has also experienced some sort of trauma of their own, they get it on some level, even if they don't 100% completely understand your type of trauma, they still get it because they've been through something that shook their foundations as well. And you can really help each other heal in ways that you may not be able to find elsewhere. And like you said, therapy is great. And I definitely recommend it. Uh, therapy has been very helpful for me, but there are ways in which my therapist cannot help me uh, because she cannot relate to the things that I've been through. There are some types of healing I've only been able to experience through my relationships with other people who have been through traumatic experiences themselves. And I, and I think that kind of brings us <clears throat> to that point of, so the trauma event happened. Yes, it screwed you up. So let's actually look a little bit, if we can, um, what does that look like in adulthood then? So for us, because I mean, you have the very specific trauma event, uh, a rape or, you know, a bomb going off by you, a car accident where you can clearly see how, oh, well, once that's repeated, that's an issue. Yeah. But let's talk about that pervasive trauma that you and I have experienced, that childhood worth of trauma and some of those themes that came up. And how is that, I guess, that trauma reoccurring or replaying in your life now? Because trauma isn't just, hey, it happened and, and it's done. It's now every day of your life. So could you speak a little bit to that? Like, what does trauma look like for you now? You experienced it as a child. How does that affect you as an adult? Well, like, like I was saying when I was kind of describing my origin of trauma, as it were, I tend to go one of two ways. Um, so either I am easily triggered and anxious and overly worried about being abandoned, or I am always keeping people at arm's length. Uh, for me, it tends to be my romantic relationships where I stress out the most. And it's all of my other types of relationships where I'm just like, well, you're probably gonna go away someday anyway. So you know what, like I love you and all, but I'm just gonna keep you over there. So that reaction response is probably the easiest for me to describe. And it is kind of a blanket thing because I, I really don't let myself, for the most part, get too close to people. Uh, I have very few actual friends, um, and a lot of the friends, because I have, I have moved a lot in my adulthood, and part of that I, is intentional on some level to keep distance from people and to keep from getting too close to people. But the people that I have remained close to, the, they're the ones for the most part, who kept that connection going. If they had not, I probably would have let it go. The few really close friends that I have are the ones who just refuse to fucking forget me when I left and they've stayed in contact and they've reached out to me. Otherwise, I probably would have let that person go from my life because in my mind, well, I've moved and they're no longer a daily part of my life or I've switched jobs. They're no longer a daily part of my life. Uh, so I guess I'm going to let go of that one and move on to a different somewhat superficial relationship where I'll be sort of close to that person for a while and then I'll let it go again. And I, for better or for worse, that is how I deal with loss in general now is just, well, this is to be expected. Everything goes away at some point, everything is temporary, best not to get overly attached. 
that is one way in which trauma has really affected me is, is my difficulty with attachment um, and allowing people to get very close, allowing myself to really feel deeply for another person because it, to me, it's just, everything is temporary and eventually that person will leave. And that's very difficult for me to get past, even with somebody who's been in my life for a very long time. Like Autumn's been, been with me literally from the beginning and has been the most steadfast person for me and has been my anchor for pretty much my entire life. But there is still a part of me in the back of my head that is always preparing for the supposed inevitable that she will find some reason not to like me anymore and she'll ditch me. That is something that is always there. Um, as far as active triggers and anxiety and the, the sorts of things that we would kind of associate more with the effects of, of previous trauma, those really show up in my romantic relationships. Uh, I, for most of, for most of my life, once I got old enough to start dating and start being in relationships, I chose a lot of very inaccessible men, a lot of men who are much older than me. Uh, yes, daddy issues. Like I will openly admit that now. I would not have been willing to admit that even a few years ago. Uh, I was not ready to see that, but I did continue over and over again to choose the same type of person that my father was. That was one of those ways that trauma repeated itself for me that I repeated it for myself was making choices to get involved with men who were not accessible to me, who did not value me, who did not prioritize me. And I would spend all of my time trying to get their attention, trying to win their love, trying to get them to commit to me. And it never worked. The, the, the one person that I will say I really have to give credit to was my second husband, Jason, was a really devoted partner. I was not in a situation or a headspace where I was ready for him. When he tried to be a good partner to me, I shoved him away. That was another way in which trauma affected me, is that when I finally actually did find somebody who genuinely cared about me and loved me and wanted to help me heal, the only thing that I could think to do was shove him away because I did not want him anywhere near me. And the harder he tried, the more I hated him. In my present day life now, in my current relationship, and I have done a lot of healing. My current relationship is actually pretty fucking healthy. And I am so proud to say that because damn it, I have worked for that. My, my partner has also been through his own types of trauma. Um, and he is a very strong and resilient person himself. And that's part of what, what brought us together. And I'm really thankful that he's been through some things himself because one of the best things about him is that he never makes me feel like I am broken or that I am defective in any way. He doesn't blame me for things. Even when he gets irritated with me, it's coming from a space of, okay, we have conflicting thoughts on this or conflicting ways of dealing with things. And we always try to come to a, to an agreement, but where I get most triggered is if I feel a threat of abandonment even a perceived threat, it doesn't even have to be real. And it never is because he's never threatened to abandon me in any way, shape or form. He's always reminding that he loves me and he's in it for the long haul. But every time he is late getting home from work, every time I call and he doesn't immediately respond, every time uh, our plans have to change because something come, comes up, 
anytime something like that happens, my first thought is he no longer loves me. This is the beginning of the end. He is going to leave me. And even if there isn't anything that prompts it, sometimes it comes out of nowhere. Sometimes for whatever reason, my anxiety is higher that day. Or maybe I'm getting close to my period and I'm feeling particularly hormonal and my anxiety is just spiking that day. If my anxiety spikes, it will always spike in his direction. And it's, it's insane. And I know that. And I get caught in this sneaky hate spiral where I you know he he leaves for work in the morning he gives me one kiss and i'm like but why didn't he give me five he must not love me anymore why doesn't he love me anymore what did i do wrong what can i do to fix it oh my god he must hate me what can i do what can i do to salvage this relationship he's going to leave me at any time he's probably going to find somebody today that's like even more attractive than i am who's smarter than i am who's a better fit for him what am i going to do to prevent that from happening what do i do to make him not hate me and i get stuck in this negative feedback loop and by the end of the day i am so convinced you know that he's about to leave because why wouldn't he he's going to just up and abandon me i'm going to be at work and he's going to just move all of his stuff out of the apartment not give me any notice at all or he's going to come home one day and he's gonna be like i just want this relationship to end because i just don't like you anymore i get it in my mind that that is going to happen and it's not because of anything that he did because by all accounts, anytime that I struggle with those thoughts and I tell him what's going on with me and that I'm having a hard time and I'm feeling insecure about it every single time, all he does is reassure me. And yet there is that part of me that is convinced that at any moment, he will suddenly go from loving me to despising me. At any moment, he will suddenly go from being a present, attentive partner to rejecting me. And it does not matter if it's just because he's late. It doesn't matter if it's because I think he gave me a weird look. It doesn't matter if it's because he's kind of cranky because he didn't get enough sleep. And it doesn't matter if he didn't do a fucking thing. And I'm just feeling anxious that day. I will feel triggered. And I will assume that he is going to leave me. And I get it in my head that not only he will leave me, but there will be no point if he did leave me. If our relationship ended, there would be no point in me getting involved with anybody again because they will just leave me too because that is what inevitably happens. It's, what, it's what's meant to happen. That's all I deserve. That, that is the impact, the direct impact that is most detrimental to me and most detrimental to my relationship. Thank God that my boyfriend is so understanding, but that is what affects me the most from that trauma with my father and no matter how much I try to fight it, no matter how much I try to work on it, it still comes back to haunt me again and again and again. I get better at managing my reactions and my behaviors, but I do not get, it has never gotten easier for me to feel those things. And I've never completely stopped feeling those things, no matter how secure I actually am in my relationship in reality. And I think I, I kind of want to comment on a couple of, again, again, those themes, because I think the way you share it really outlines some of the things. So it's like when we talk about being triggered, again, people hear that. They're like, oh, they're triggered. And OK, but what does that mean? And the two biggest things there is one, obsessive. Those thoughts you're talking about are obsessive. And what that literally means is you have no control over no. them. So when you are triggered and you have whatever response it is, there is no control. 
there may be a little sane part of you that's locked inside of a cage watching you do this, being like, what is wrong with you that logically gets it? Doesn't matter. Your behavior is completely out of your control. And then the second thing I really want to point out with that, overreactive. And that's what a trigger is. It's, yes, we all react and, oh, we all get scared, but it's overreacting because the reality is, is you're not reacting to what's happening now. You're reacting to what's happened in your past. So when she only gets one kiss in the morning and now all of a sudden she has to obsessively think about him leaving her for eight hours, that is an overreaction to what should have happened. At most, maybe she should have been like, oh, I only got one kiss today. That kind of sucks. I was a little bummed. And then she shakes it off. That's a reaction. But a trigger is an overreaction because you're not reacting to now. You're reacting to the past. And I think with mine, and I, I think this is a great example, and this is a trigger that I have, <laughs> I have worked for my own sanity, the sanity of my loved ones, and the sanity of my dishes um, to, to work on, was um, dishes in the sink. Um, when I was around 13, uh, my mom got depressed, went to sleep for a few years. Dad basically said, hey, you're in charge of the household. Well, what would happen is nobody did anything. Okay. So, and if you want me to think I'm blaming Ivy, I'm not. She's like six at the time. All right. She's not going to be taking care of the household. I'm taking care of her, but nobody would take care of anything. So I would go to my grandma's for the weekend um, just to have a couple days to myself to get away. I'd come home. There would be piles of dog shit and urine all over the floor that nobody had picked up all weekend. There would be dishes all throughout the house. And this is Missouri in the summer with no air conditioning. There would be food left over in them, maggots crawling through them. Um, I would have to clean up everything. And I am 13, taking care of my sister, taking care of my mother, taking care of an entire household, taking care of 20 dogs, I think 30 cats, and another handful of pets, trying to figure out how to do this with absolutely no support. So overwhelmed is what I was when I was 13. Overwhelmed. And so only until like maybe five years ago, if I would have a bad day and I would get home and there was a dish in the sink. I would flip out. And what this means for me is a very physical reaction. Sometimes it would be screaming. Sometimes it would be punching walls, self-harm. The dish would typically get broke. I would be like, fine, I'll clean the dish. And then I'd end up crying. And then I'd put the dish away so hard I would break it or break something else. And this is a dish is left in the sink. And I know all of us out there that are the cleaners in our house or the one that take care of the chores, we all get upset when like, oh, why does nobody do the dishes? That's a reaction. Oh, I'm so frustrated. The trigger is the overreaction. There is a single dish in the sink. I am now going to have a complete mental breakdown. I am going to scream. I am going to swear. I am going to track down the person in the house and berate them. I am going to break the dish. I am going to cry and I'm going to self-harm because there is a dish in the sink. So that's what a trigger looks like. And, and obviously I've worked on that one because that one was very, very um, not good, <laughs> very violent, very not good for me. I did not like that. I didn't like what I was doing. And so I'm actually do very much better with that most days now. Um, I think for me, though, another way, and this is a more global one, um, the way trauma affected me. Again, it goes back to that safety and safety, again, my core thing. Um, I think it's best defined as I am living off grid in Eastern Montana. That is my core definition of how did trauma affect me? And you'd be like, well, how are those things connected? Other humans are not safe. 
they are honestly active threats. Every single other human is an active threat that may potentially harm me. So I want to be as far away from them as possible. So I am living in eastern Montana, which I believe is our fourth least populated state on the least populated site of that state to stay as far away from humans as I possibly can because I need to be safe and I need to feel safe and humans are not safe. So I need to get away from humans. Then I also cannot trust other people to ensure my safety. So if I work for someone and they provide me money, well, that money is providing me safety. I cannot trust that job to continue to provide that that money. No matter how hard I work, I will always worry that they're going to fire me. Every single boss I've ever had, with the exception of one, has been in love with me. They have fought to not have me leave. They think I'm the greatest employee ever. But every single day, I am sure I am going to get fired from my job because I can't trust other people to keep me safe. And that is part of what the job's doing. So if money is how you keep people safe and I need to work for others and trust them to keep me safe, well, that's not going to work. So I went and bought land and I'm working to become self-sustainable because if I can provide my own shelter and provide my own food and provide my own water, then I don't need other people to keep me safe. So this is one that I have probably let, I'm going to say a little bit, affect my life, <laughs> but I am, I am so concerned with safety that I am doing my best to take every single possible concern for my own safety into my control so that I don't have to be worried about others betraying that safety. I'd, I'd say that's a little bit of an effect, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, one thing that I, I want to make note about, about that, um, that, like the life choices that we, <laughs> that we make that stem from our trauma, as much as it would be great, because I don't know about you guys out there, but I have read a ton of self-help books over the years trying to get healthy. And I kind of got it stuck in my head that the version of the only version that existed of healthy was all of the cliche shit that I read in all of the books. And while there is fantastic stuff in those books, very helpful, wonderful, great. Things don't always look like that. Sometimes you have to work with sometimes you have to work with your trauma um, because those demons don't ever go away. There's always going to be some skeletons in your closet and the likelihood that you will ever be able to clear everything out and light up that whole internal house and have everything feel safe and wonderful and amazing. That is unrealistic. Healthy does not look like a complete recovery with no long-term effects. That is not what it looks like. Healthy, I, I guess in some ways I would say it kind of looks like going into, going into remission because there's always gonna be, you will always have been affected by what you have been through. It will always be in the back of your mind that you may go through other similar things. Um, you will have to make lifestyle changes that are forever. And you will always be trying to kind of keep the boogeyman at bay. And so what's textbook for healthy may not be what actually realistically looks like healthy for you. And Autumn, 
doing everything that she's doing to go off grid and be self-sustainable, that is not running away from the trauma. She has acknowledged the trauma. She knows it's there. She knows where it stems from. She knows what she's working with. And she knows that on some level, you cannot avoid relationships with people and people in general and feelings of insecurity and in not being safe. It is impossible to completely avoid those things, but you can do things to improve the state of your life and to improve your own mental health and to help you cope in a way that feels right for you. And that may look weird to people on the outside sometimes. Um, some of the, the decisions that we, that we make may seem a little bit strange. The, the way that I deal with relationships may seem a little bit strange to, to people. I have, I've recently had a, a friend in my life who was going through some pretty traumatic things now with his family. He's always been able to rely on his family and now he doesn't have that anymore. His safety net is completely gone and got ripped out from underneath him. And he's feeling all of this intense betrayal and he's really struggling with it. And to me, I, I had to, I had to bring myself back to that moment where I felt that with my father in order to understand where my friend is coming from. Because for me, that is so normal that I have gotten to a point in my life where when relationships fall apart, I just accept that maybe that person's not meant to be in my life forever. And yeah, that's, that can be sad. And yeah, that is maybe in some ways not the greatest way to deal with trauma because ideally, according to the, all the books, you should be able to learn how to completely trust people and make yourself vulnerable and put yourself out there and, and expect that people will love you forever because you deserve it. And I'm not saying that's not true. I'm not saying that you don't deserve it, but I am saying that things happen. Life happens. Sometimes relationships fall apart. Sometimes you're really close to somebody for a while and then you come to a fork in the road and you go your separate ways. One of the things that I consider to be a mixed blessing for me is that, yeah, I have not had very many close relationships, but the close relationships that I do have have been amazing. And when a loss occurs for me, it does not destroy my world anymore. I am able to accept that sometimes people drift apart and sometimes people go their separate ways and maybe they come back together and maybe they don't, but I'm able to be at peace with those things. Other people have sometimes looked at me and my, my reaction to loss as being cold hearted, have looked at me as being aloof, as not being willing or able to get close to people. And that is not true. Not completely. I do get close to people in my own way. And I have worked actively to be able to be more vulnerable with people and be able to feel that closeness and try to trust people. I have worked on that, but there, I do still consider it a blessing that when a loss occurs for me, it is not reality destroying. It does not shake me to my core the way that it does a lot of other people. To me, I feel like my ability to handle loss is healthier than it might have been otherwise because I did, I did get shaken to my core at such a young age and that was horrible for me and it does have negative side effects, but it has also in some ways 
helped me to be able to see that sometimes this is just the nature of relationships and it's okay if a relationship doesn't last forever and you can still love a person and care about a person all of that and love yourself and care about yourself and not maintain a connection with that individual for the entirety of your life and that's fine so healthy does not always look textbook and what is healthy for you may look strange to other people that is okay that is part of the different functional mission statement is to help all of you and to help ourselves as well to remember that just because we've been through these things and just because it is it has affected us that does not make us necessarily dysfunctional individuals we have just found ways to function differently to heal in our own way and to find our own version of healthy and and real and authentic that's i think that's the 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 kind of the takeaway from all of this for for me and why i really want to start this podcast is that i really want to encourage everybody to see themselves as on a journey towards bettering their lives in whatever way fits them what is healthy for you what is happy for you what is fulfilling for you work towards that that's how you heal from the that's how you heal from the trauma yes it will always be there but you heal by becoming the person that you want to be and that feels right for you and is the picture of health for you like you said with the different functional and it's not just a cop-out and it's not just working with the scars it's actively choosing to embrace them and actively in choosing to embrace who those are. Because a lot of us who have been through that trauma during the childhood, well, everybody knows that that childhood and adolescence, those are your formative years. That's what they're called, formative, because they're forming who you are. So those of us that went through it during those times, that trauma is part of our personalities and those quirks are part of who we are. And so in order to be normal, healthy, however you want to define that, you would have to change who you are. And and that's why I'm living out where I am. Because I came to a point where I said, okay, I can keep working toward the world's version of healthy. And I will no longer be autumn. I will no longer be who I am. And I am not okay with that. So no, I don't want to be functional by society standards. I don't want to be functional. Because if I am functional by society standards, I will no longer be who I am. And it's taken a lot of years, but I like myself overall most days. <laughs> and so I don't want to erase that person. And that really is the point of, as you said, the podcast and the business and the whole idea is becoming different functional and accepting that. Yes, working with the trauma and yes, settling what you can and cannot do, but also embracing those strengths that came because of it, that you've mastered because of it and embracing those differences and embracing those changes and becoming different functional, maybe not just for you, but maybe for society at large. Because I think a lot of us can agree, society at large isn't on the best path. And so maybe it's time for something a little different. So maybe it's Ivy and maybe it's me and maybe it's you choosing to say, hey, you know what? Society, that's not really healthy. How about we try something different? Yeah, I mean, because society overall would have if if it had its way society would be like see those scars you have we can just make those go away 
it's just going to be gone. You'll just be like pristine all over again. But that is not what I would want. I appreciate the scars that I have. I, I feel like the scars that I have, even though they came from a deeply painful place, are a beautiful, unique aspect of me. And I would not trade them for the world. The idea of healthy based on what society says we should do, that idea of healthy, to me, like Autumn is saying, erases a huge part of who I am. So I'm going to embrace my scars and I'm going to show them off because I love them. They are a part of me that I value. They are proof to me that I have survived again and again and I am going strong and I am getting healthy based on what I want for my life. And I am, I am making good decisions for myself and I am enjoying, I am enjoying the life that I have and I am enjoying the person that I am becoming. And I'm proud of the person that I am becoming. That I think is what really matters most is to love the scars that you have, not to be ashamed of them or to try to make them go away to fit within the confines of what other people tell you is beautiful and healthy and bright. Yes, that's so true. I mean, our scars are our story. I mean, they are the dragons we fought. They're the magic we did. They're the journeys we went on and the friends we made and the friends we lost. And I wouldn't want to erase all of that. But a lot of my initial story during the first 20 years of my life, maybe 25 years of my life, was written by other people. And so that's the other piece now is being able to say, yes, these scars are here. No, I'm not going to erase them because yes, they are my story. But now I'm going to write the ending to this. I'm going to write tomorrow. I'm going to write the next day. I'm going to have enough health within me, enough belief within me, and enough support around me to make the choice to be who I want to be. Yes, absolutely. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think that's pretty much covered all we're going to be covering for today on trauma. Um, we definitely hope that you enjoyed our very first podcast episode. We definitely hope you continue to listen. We've got a few episodes that we're going to be putting out there. So join us on in and listen on up. Yeah, we are hoping to continue on this podcast series for quite some time. There's a, a lot of things that we could talk about. Uh, we are really looking forward to kind of getting to know some of you guys. We definitely appreciate you being here and listening. We hope that you gain something from this. Uh, we, we hope that this gives you hope for the future and makes you feel a little bit more beautiful in your own scars. And we are definitely looking forward to continuing this series and creating a, a, a safe community of different functional people for all of us. So if you, uh, if you dig this podcast, please leave us a review, subscribe, like, follow, do all that stuff. And I guess we'll just end it with, you know, I guess what our logo is going to be, which is just remember out there, everybody, different functional does not mean dysfunctional. That's right. My mind